You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Medical experts Julie Morita and Celine Grounder join the Post to discuss coronavirus vaccines and variants as infections rise in some states. Let's listen. Good morning and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at The Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. And this morning, I'm delighted to welcome two medical experts here to be with us today. They are Dr. Julie Morita, and she's the executive vice president of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and Dr. Celine Gounder, clinical assistant professor of medicine and infectious diseases at New York University and CEO of Just Human Productions. Both Dr. Marita and Dr. Gounder served on the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Thanks for having us, Paige. So let's start off talking about the breaking news this morning, of course, that the CDC is recommending a pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine with the news that six women have had incidents of blood clots after receiving the vaccine. Dr. Gounder, how much cause for concern is this? Are the FDA and CDC making the right move here? Paige, I think they are making the right move by putting a pause, evaluating the data, and figuring out where to move next. I think big picture, the risk here is exceedingly low on the order of one in a million. So that's a very low risk of blood clots. I think where the uh, focus is going to be is whether younger women specifically perhaps women who are taking birth control pills, which can also increase the risk for blood clots, whether there might be specific guidance with respect to using the Johnson & Johnson vaccine in that population. And I think that remains to be seen. I do think we're going to see the pause will be lifted, that we'll continue using the J&J vaccine. But I think it's really important for the public to see that we're taking the right steps, reviewing the data to figure out what is safe. Well, and I want to talk about risk for a minute, because as you say, this is very rare. We don't even know that there is necessarily a connection between the vaccine and the blood clots. And to put this in context, seven mil- around 7 million people have received the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. We're talking about roughly one event of blood clotting out of a million people. Um, uh, Dr. Marita, how should people look at the risk here? Are there ways to sort of put this risk in context as people are thinking about whether to get the vaccine? Yeah, one of the things I would say is I think before we jump into that, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that the fact that we know this information is really important, that we have these systems that are in place to be able to monitor when vaccines are released to the public and that we're able to detect when these rare or unusual side effects actually occur. So we're in a good place because we actually have been able to detect that and then to pause on the vaccine rollout right now so that we can have the data and really understand what the risk looks like is really important. And so an emergency meeting of the ACIP tomorrow will help to shed some light on what needs to happen next if it's ongoing study or if the vaccines can actually be resumed. So I think that it's really important to keep that in mind. Before I continue, though, I do want to acknowledge the fact that the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, where I work, we actually are independently managed from J&J. Um, but we do own stock in the, in the company. And so I just want people to be know, to know that as we continue this conversation. Well, right, thank you for acknowledging that. Um, you know, the government 
we know is balancing two priorities here, right? It's being transparent about the what we know about the vaccine, and it, then it's also trying to encourage and urge the public to get the vaccine, saying that we do know that they're safe. Uh, Dr. Gounder, how, how should the government go about doing that in this particular situation where, on one hand, there are these incidents and they're trying to be transparent. On the other hand, we're in the midst of a vaccine effort and really trying to convince people to get the shots. Yeah, you know, I think part of the challenge here is that we, you know, as people, as the average person, we're really bad at weighing risk and benefit. Um, to put some of this risk into context, so again, the, the risk of uh, these blood clots among people who got the J&J vaccine are about one in a million uh, for all comers. Uh, if, if you took birth control pills, your risk of getting a blood clot is one in 3,000. And if you're hospitalized with COVID, your risk of a blood clot is one in five. So if you're comparing just, you know, the risk of getting a blood clot with vaccination versus the risk of getting a blood clot if you get COVID, there is a tremendous difference there. I think the other thing is we're really bad at weighing risk when we're talking about old risk versus new risk. So new risk, for example, with a vaccine, a, a new vaccine or new risk um, uh, excuse me, old risk with something like driving to work or taking birth control. Um, those may actually be riskier activities, but they're older risks that we've gotten used to living with. And so we just don't think about them in the same way anymore. Well, that's an that's an excellent excellent point. Uh, and Dr. Gounder, what about the AstraZeneca vaccine? I wanted to ask about that because, of course, this has been a concern also in some countries in Europe, and we've seen some pausing of of the vaccines there. And I know this is leading to questions about whether the U.S. is even going to use AstraZeneca. What's your thought on that? Um, is that even necessary to go there, given we have these other vaccines? Um, do you anticipate that the U.S. will go ahead and, and approve AstraZeneca's, and that will start being distributed here? Yeah, I think you have a couple different um, questions here really embedded in that. One is um, the AstraZeneca vaccine is an adenovirus vector vaccine like the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Uh, we have now seen these very rare blood clots with low platelet counts with both vaccines. And so that is prompting questions as to whether there's something about that adenovirus vector that's actually leading uh, to these clots here. Uh, and this is important because there are other adenovirus vector vaccines out there. The Russian Sputnik vaccine also uses that technology. The Chinese vaccines use this technology. And so this has tremendous implications for the world's supply of vaccines. In the US, honestly, between the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, we have plenty of vaccine supply to, to vaccinate Americans. We don't even need the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, much less the AstraZeneca vaccine. But I do think it is important that the FDA uh, review the Johnson & Johnson data, uh, make recommendations on that. It is important to have that tool uh, both for the U.S. population, uh, perhaps people who only want one dose uh, or who are harder to reach, um, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine does have some pros there. And it's important for the FDA to review the AstraZeneca vaccine before we provide that vaccine to the rest of the world, before we uh, loan uh, or donate or however we uh, arrange to, to provide that supply. But I, I think it's important that we be able to say, look, we're not just giving you faulty goods. We're truly giving you something that we have reviewed and deemed safe and effective. Let's talk about some good news for a minute. Uh, we're seeing some great numbers in terms of the vaccination effort 
uh, more than, I think around 120 million Americans have gotten one shot, around 70 million fully vaccinated. Um, Dr. Marita, what grade would you give the vaccination effort at this point? Um, let's see, that's a great question. I think that um, I think that we're improving. So um, I guess maybe I would say that we're uh, at a B plus right now, that we have room to improve, but we're definitely better than we were earlier at the start of the vaccination effort. One of the things I'm really pleased to see is that the total number of the vaccines are going up. But in addition to that, there's increasing focus on reaching the communities have, that have been hit hardest by the pandemic. So we know that there's been a disproportionate impact of serious disease, hospitalization, and death among our communities of color and our, our low-income communities. And there's been a very concerted effort to make sure the vaccines are getting into those communities and being more accessible to them. And there's billions of dollars that have been released and, and over $300 million that have been released to actually work with communities to address these, make sure the vaccine is ex as ex accessible as possible. I'm also pleased to see that the um, the numbers of people who are interested in getting vaccinated um, and who have more trust and confidence in the vaccine is increasing. So where last year we were seeing low numbers, low percentages of people that were actually interested in getting vaccine, uh, we're now seeing those numbers actually increase. And so it's really just on the system itself to be made so easy that people can get the vaccines um, without any uh, barriers. So overall, I'd say I'd give the vaccine effort a B plus right now, but I know that there's room for improvement because we still have some um, communities that aren't getting the vaccine, and, and there are still some communities that have questions about the vaccine as well. Dr. Marita, are you concerned that this news about Johnson & Johnson might start undermining this effort? I know that people often just see a headline, they see the word blood clot, and Johnson & Johnson put those things together without really looking into it. I think it's a good it's, a, it's important to highlight the fact that the fact that we know this information is really important and critical, that we're being transparent, that there is a system in place to detect adverse events, and there's also a strong system to evaluate what, is, what do these adverse events mean? Are they uh, cause and effect? Do we need to halt the program itself? We're just pausing it right now so we can actually collect additional information and really understand what is happening. And that should be reassuring to the public. The federal government has now asked the vaccines to be paused in their programming. I suspect the states will also do the same and will stop administering the vaccine until we have additional information. That should be very reassuring to the public. Billion, millions and millions of doses have been administered, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines, and the ongoing safety monitoring, monitoring has been happening as well, and there hasn't been a need to pause those programs. Uh, and so I think it should be reassuring to the public that we have these systems for monitoring. Nothing has been detected at this point for those vaccines, and they should feel confident getting those vaccines. And while we're figuring out what's happening with the J&J &J vaccines, they should be comfortable proceeding with those. Let's talk about the variants for a minute, Dr. Gounder. I want to get your thought on this because I, I, I'm not sure we've had a lot of agreement among epidemiologists, public health experts as to the level of concern. You know, where there, there were those saying the variants are really going to, you know, extend the length of this pandemic. Others were saying it's not that big of a deal. I know we're seeing an uptick in the, the UK variant in Michigan, but what's your level of concern Are you and which variants are you watching the most closely? Yeah, I think it really does depend on which variant you're talking about. Uh, the B117 variant, which was first detected in the United Kingdom, is now the dominant variant here in the United States. It appears to be what is fueling a surge in Michigan uh, now also in Minnesota, Illinois, uh, as well as other parts of the country. And I think it really depends on how much vaccination those areas have managed to do before 
the B117 variant hit. And, and this is where we may have an advantage over countries like the UK, like some of the European countries that got hit with B117 earlier before they had a chance to really roll out vaccines. I, I think, you know, there's been some debate, should we be surging vaccine supply to Michigan right now? The problem is it takes time uh, before your immune system is, uh, before you're fully immune after you receive a vaccine. It's not when the needle touches your arm that you're immune. Uh, if you look at the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, those are two doses, and then you wait another 14 days after the second dose before you're immune. With the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's 14 to 28 days after that dose that you're fully immune. And so even if we start vaccinating now, you're not going to see the impact of that vaccination until a month or more from now. So we really need to focus on vaccinating ahead of the, the variants, not as they're hitting. The, the two other variants that we're most concerned about are the B1351, which was detected first in South Africa, uh, and the P1 uh, variant, which was first detected in Brazil. And those are concerning because there is a trend towards uh, evading both uh, natural infection, uh, immunity from natural infection, as well as immunity from vaccination. And so if those variants continue to mutate, you could have full evasion of immunity from the vaccination. So it's something that we're keeping a very close eye on. Uh, one piece of good news on that front is, at least with the South African variant, it does not seem to be spreading as efficiently uh, in Europe, for example. And it really does seem to be that if you're thinking about this as a race between variants, the B117 UK variant seems to be winning that race. So on the topic of Michigan, we know that uh, Michigan's governor has asked for extra vaccine doses. This week, the Biden administration has said, no, you should shut down instead. And I'd like to hear from both of you whether you think that's been the right decision or whether the administration should consider consider sending extra vaccines there. Uh, maybe Dr. Gounder first and then Dr. Marita. Yeah, I agree with the administration's policy on this because, again, it takes time before vaccination takes effect. And if you're really thinking about this big picture, we should be vaccinating perhaps more heavily in the places that will surge next. It's, the, it's just that we don't really know where those places are going to be. Are those going to be the states that um, were hit hard over the summer last summer? We, we don't know. You know, is this a, something that's seasonal and geographic or what is driving uh, certain surges in certain places at any one point in time. Uh, so it's really not going to help. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that people compare this to uh, wrongly is smallpox vaccination, where we did uh, what we call ring vaccination. You have a case and then you vaccinate um, everybody around that case to protect from spread. Smallpox is a very different virus. The incubation period, the average incubation period for smallpox is 10 to 14 days. And remember, it takes your immune system about 14 days to, to gear up. So even if you are vaccinated after exposure with smallpox, it could still be protective. COVID is a very different virus. Um, you, the average incubation period for SARS-CoV-2 is four to five days. So if you vaccinate somebody around the time of their exposure, they're gonna develop the disease before the vaccine takes effect. Uh, the other piece of this is that Michigan has plenty of supply. There are many areas in Michigan where vaccine appointments are going unfilled. So that really is vaccine that could be reallocated uh, based on zip code within the state. 
the federal government has already been um, sending additional help uh, going back to February, a couple hundred federal staffers to help with distribution and the logistics of administration. They're sending more because this really is about getting shots in arms, not whether there are enough shots to be had. And Dr. Morita, what would your response be? Is the Biden administration making the right move here? takes time to actually take effect and to actually start preventing disease. And so at this point, when they're seeing high levels of disease activity in places like Michigan and Minnesota, the vaccination is important to continue to do, but these other measures that we also know are very effective. Over the past year, we've learned that when we increase social distancing, when we limit crowds from gathering, when we do, we encourage people to wear masks and to wash their hands carefully, those kinds of activities can make a big difference in terms of disease transmission. And so those are the kinds of things that we need to be doing in any jurisdiction that has high levels of activity, disease activity. And we need to be making sure the vaccines are getting out to the people and into arms. And it, they have to actually get into the communities that actually have been hardest hit as well. So while Celine pointed out that there, there is abundant vaccine, or, or there is, I shouldn't say abundant vaccine, but there is a vaccine available. We have to make sure that it's getting into the right communities and the supports are in place to help people navigate the systems because the systems have been complicated and not everyone has easy access to them. So I think that these measures to protect the public that require social distancing, the mask wearing, um, the hand washing, those kinds of things are critical, are really essential while the vaccines are getting administered as well. Paige, if I may, um, you know, I would yeah. compare this, you know, I think about this a bit like a car where uh, you have a brake pedal, um, which is essentially like your masking, your social distancing, the good ventilation, all of that. Uh, and then you have the, um, the parking brake, which is like your vaccination. If you're speeding down a highway and you want to stop right away, you use the brake pedal, not the parking brake. The parking brake will keep you stopped once you're stopped. So similarly, in this situation, when you have a big surge, you need that brake pedal, you need the masking, the social distancing, and all of the rest of those mitigation measures. Once you have suppressed the transmission, once you're out of a surge, uh, the vaccine is like a brake pedal or a parking brake, where it really will help prevent another surge from happening. We've talked about Michigan. Let's talk about Texas for a minute. And this is a little bit counterintuitive. As you know, when Texas lifted the mask mandate and some other uh, measures over a month ago, there were a lot of dire predictions. We haven't seen those come to fruition. Texas still has one of the lowest rates of new cases per capita and far lower than Michigan, which had kept many of its measures in place. Uh, Dr. Marita, what do you make of that? Uh, why are we seeing you know, such good results in Texas so far? I think there's a lot of variables to consider in terms of disease transmission and in the living circumstances are in different in Michigan than they are in Texas. Um, the weather conditions are different and so people may be able to be outside more than they are indoor in a, in a Midwestern community. So those kinds of factors can play take into can take can play out as well and, and affect disease transmission. Um, so I think it's it's hard to know exactly what is it is. It's also the other factor to consider is also variants. Are the variants as common in Texas as they are in Michigan? And and so I think those factors all take in, uh, play into how how much disease is actually spreading. The other 
consideration is vaccine coverage levels and how much, how high are the vaccine coverage levels. So multiple factors play taken to consider are needed to be taken into consideration when we think about how disease is spreading. I I want to ask both of you something I'm just curious about. Have you been able to re receive the vaccine and how are you uh, making decisions in your own life? What kind of activities are you personally choosing to participate in or not participate in uh, now compared to say last summer when we didn't have the vaccines? Uh, Dr. Gounder, let's hear from you first. Well, I am a provider. Um, I'm both an uh, internist as well as infectious disease specialist. I'm attending on the wards at Bellevue right now, which is why I have scrubs on. Um, and so I've been taking care of patients all throughout the pandemic. And as a frontline provider, was eligible in the very beginning to get vaccinated. So I got my first dose of Pfizer back in December, my second dose in January. I had no side effects from that. Um, but that said, you know, other people in my life have not been able to get vaccinated. My husband only got his first dose of vaccine this past week here in New York City. And so, you know, we really have continued to follow um, all of the mitigation measures. We have gone out to eat, but only outdoors. And really, otherwise, that's the only change in, in behavior so far. I continue to mask. Uh, at our hospital right now, we are um, required to wear an N95 mask at all times with all patient interactions. So I just throw on that N95 first thing when I get to work in the morning, um, switching out from a, just a regular surgical mask. And I wear that straight through until I leave at the end of the day. Um, so you know, I think one uh, misunderstanding people have is they think of the vaccine in terms of only personal protection. Vaccines work best at a population level. And so not, until most people um, who want to get vaccinated can get vaccinated, there is still going to be significant risk. You're going to have the virus circulating in the community. And even with the best vaccines, they're not 100% effective. So if you think about it, and these are just random numbers, really just for illustration, if you start with a risk of, say, 1,000, and you cut that risk by 95%, that's still a significant risk versus starting with uh, perhaps a risk of 10 and cutting that by 95%. And we're still at a very high risk, a very high level of transmission in the community where vaccines are very protective at an individual level, but they're not perfect. And Dr. Marita, what about you? So I am a pediatrician but I'm not clinically active like Selena is. And so I opted to wait to get vaccinated because I didn't feel like my risk was that high and, and I'm not interacting with patients. So I waited until uh, just last month to get vaccinated. I got my first dose because I wanted to volunteer to vaccinate within the city of Chicago. That's where I'm living right now. And so I just completed my series a, a week and a half ago. Uh, my husband is a healthcare provider who is clinically active, so he received his vaccine earlier on. And so we've been waiting actually till we are both fully vaccinated and two weeks out to actually uh, enter my parents' home. So my parents live uh, about two blocks away from me and my dad is 91 and my mom is 87. And we haven't been in that, in a building there in the same space as them inside for many, many months. We've been standing outside on their front porch talking with them. And so we're looking forward to this weekend where we actually can go into their house and have a meal together and talk because they are fully vaccinated and we are fully vaccinated. 
when my husband and I are outside, we are wearing our masks. We continue to wear our masks. We haven't gone into restaurants to eat indoors, and we probably won't for a long time. I think I I feel much more comfortable um, avoiding indoor mass gatherings or large groups. Um, and even with restaurants that are at 50% or 25% capacity, it still makes me a little bit uncomfortable. So we've really opted to maintain our social distancing, to continue to wear our masks, to hand wash very regularly, and to really limit our, our social interactions uh, at this point. So as you know, there's of course been a lot of opposition to mask wearing, social distancing, and that's been talked a lot about. Um, but let's talk about the flip side of it. Are there any ways in which people have overreacted to the threat of the virus? And you know, we've been talking about risk, and you know, I'm thinking now we're learning about, for example, ways the virus doesn't spread. There's more and more research coming out showing that very young children don't tend to spread it the way adults do, that it doesn't spread on surfaces the way that we thought previously. And are there any ways, I guess, in which we've sort of overreacted and sort of spawned unnecessary side effects? For example, I'm thinking of the CDC guidance that desks had to be six feet apart, and now they've revised it down to three feet. But that original guidance was why many schools didn't have in-person learning for kids throughout the year. Dr. Gounder, what do you think about that? This really comes down to what we've learned about how the virus is transmitted over the past year. In the beginning, we thought this was largely through contact, direct contact with uh, perhaps hands or surfaces, as well as droplets. And so as a result, we were recommending wash your hands, you know, clean these surfaces, stay six feet apart, because droplets do fall to the ground within about a six foot radius. What we have learned over the past year, though, is that aerosols, which uh, are much smaller than droplets, they float in the air and, and can travel longer distances, those aerosols are probably much more significant um, in, in terms of transmission of COVID. And so that does have implications for what works best uh, to prevent transmission. So it's really about masks, uh, ventilation, and the density of people in a space as opposed to the actual distance between them. So for example, for the school setting, that means, yes, you can have kids closer together. They don't have to be six feet apart as long as you have the masking, good ventilation, which could in some cases just be opening a window. Um, and, and you don't need to do some of these other things like uh, you know all of this intense disinfection of, of surfaces. That's not as important. Uh, it's never a bad idea to wash your hands. I think that's a, a really good thing to do no matter what, um, but it's probably not as important for transmission, transmission of COVID as we might initially have thought it was. Dr. Gounder, I want to also ask you about the vaccine that's being used in China right now. Uh, the head of China's CDC has conceded that the efficacy of the vaccine is not high, yet we know that China is sending a lot of these doses to other uh, poorer countries who may not have access to the vaccines that are available in the U.S. Does this concern you at all? I am concerned. Uh, you know, I don't think... Um we should be sending inferior goods to the rest of the world. Um, and so that does have me very concerned. That said, uh, even a 50% reduction in transmission or in, in uh, risk is significant. So I don't think these vaccines are useless, but I really would like to see um, safe and effective vaccines distributed for everyone across the world. Well, and we're almost out of time, but Dr. Marita, I wanna 
ask you just one more question. Um, as we're reflecting on the past year of pandemic, uh, what have what are what are the one or two lessons that we've learned about our public health infrastructure here in the U.S. and how we can be better prepared in the future? I think we've seen this over the course of the decade decades that there basically is increasing public health support in terms of federal resources when there's a public health emergency, whether it's something like Ebola or Zika or H1N1 or now COVID, surges of funding come to support public health infrastructure. And then when the crisis subsides, the funding goes away and then our infrastructure isn't maintained. And I think what happened here was clearly a, a reflection. Our initial responses were clearly a reflection of poor data infrastructure, poor workforce infrastructure. And so we weren't able to mobilize as quickly as possible. So we really need to sustain those levels of support. The other thing, key message that I would say that is really important to keep in mind is that what COVID has done is made clear the structural inequities, how they are related to poor health outcomes. So the groups who have been disproportionately impacted by COVID really are disproportionately impacted because of the systems that we have in place that don't allow them to protect themselves. So people that don't have paid leave or people that are unable to work from home, people who don't have uh, broadband internet access, these kinds of things are just essential for people to live healthy lives at baseline. And when a public health emergency em emerges, that's when those populations actually suffer the most. So we really have to look at these root causes of poor health upstream and before the next crisis and take care of them. So I'm hopeful that we'll actually be able to learn important lessons from what's happened now so that we're better prepared for the next public health emergency. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we're going to have to leave things there. But thank you so much, Dr. Julie Morita and Dr. Celine Gounder for joining me today. It's been a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Great Paige. to be here. Well, as always, thanks for joining us today for Washington Post Live. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.